The Twilight Saga is a story of deception, boundary breaking, and binaries. It socialized me as a kid, and it socialized a million other preteens and teens who are trying to fall in love for the first time. Most of the messages in this book are overt and ugly now that I read it back as an adult, but there's one element that exists deep within the lines while also riding the surface. I'm referring to the treatment of Jacob Black and the Quileute tribe. Stephanie Meyer draws a lot of lines in her story just to cross them. This week, I'm talking about a number of those lines. The border between Forks and the Little Push Reservation, the personal boundaries of every human who interacts with a vampire, and the Mason-Dixon line, with Jasper Collins standing squarely in the Confederate South. When it comes to representation, Stephanie Meyer is working with an unsettling binary of an obvious line. Which side of history does she stand on? Unlike episodes past, today we're focusing mostly on moments from Eclipse, the third book in the saga, and the most forgettable movie, if we're honest. In fact, the movie's so slow and boring, I'm convinced you could skip it and not miss a moment of plot. The mountain of information in Eclipse may be basically inconsequential to the action of the story, but it's rich with assumptions about the, both the Quileu and the Confederate Army. Since you probably forgot what's going on in that movie, no really, try to think of one thing that happens in that movie. I'll go through it really quick. Bella and Edward are locked in a stalemate about whether or not they should get married. Bella has seen her parents get divorced and knows that it's an imperfect, perhaps meaningless union that pales in comparison to a commitment like Edward turning her. Edward, of course, is from the early 1900s and he thinks that marriage is the best thing ever and wishes he could have courted Bella the old-fashioned way. I'd like to point out that that's taken for granted, but I think that was only a rich people thing. Like, I'm pretty sure that not well-off people didn't court each other and get married the way that he's describing. Jacob is off on his own, picking up the pieces of his heart that Bella shattered in New Moon. All of Bella's human friends are oscillating in the background, planning for graduation and being normal. The main conflict is introduced and resolved in Eclipse, which is a big part of why it totally doesn't need to be a part of the saga, in my opinion. Everything else has currents that run all the way through. This movie is and book are completely contained. There are a bunch of scary newborn vampires being created in Seattle, and they're going on huge, violent, conspicuous killing sprees, threatening the Cullen Coven by their very existence and obviously taking human lives as well. Their existence means that the Volturi could show up at any moment and take a look at Bella and find out she's still human, but on top of that, the newborn vampires are running around everywhere, including the places they shouldn't be on the LaPush Reservation. As a result of the vampire spawn hotspot, the Quileute tribe is seeing members transform into werewolves in huge numbers. The wolf generation always corresponds to vampire threat, which I've got more on later. In order to battle the incoming army of uncontrollable newborns, Jasper, former major in the Confederate Army, teaches the members of the Colin Coven and the Wolves of Lapush how to defeat newborns, which, uh, too long didn't read, you rip their heads off. Uh, real quick before we move on, I grew up away from any states represented in the Civil War. Even though a few Republicans fly the good old stars and bars in southern Arizona, the history is largely mythological. The state wasn't even founded until 1912, and there aren't Civil War-era buildings the way that there are in the eastern half of the country. Plus, I'm white, so I likely could have comfortably ignored lingering Civil War-era racism if I grew up in those states anyway. 
I was pretty well represented in the media as a kid, even if Disney women tend to be built exceptionally skinny with personalities that are impossible to imitate. My friendships and family were reflected back to me in most TV shows, movies, magazines, etc. I was raised with the notion of being colorblind to race because it doesn't matter to a person's value as a human. Through paying more attention to skin color as an adult, by paying more attention to more black speakers and thinkers, it's become obvious that even though race doesn't determine someone's value as a person, in America, someone's race, or even more specifically just their perceived skin color, is a huge indicator to their treatment in society. In southern Arizona, we have a lot of awareness of indigenous people. Unlike other parts of the country, you don't have to go far out of your way to try to understand the native experience. I grew up with a curriculum in elementary and middle school that included Hopi, Navajo, and Ohodom traditions, and I had kids from my classes in those tribes. My elementary school also had a substantial Mexican population, and we had flamenco dancers come to visit for assemblies and bilingual ESL classrooms, and I think just a lot more culture than a lot of white kids end up getting. As a kid, I fully thought the entire world was as integrated as the schools and daycares that I went to. When I practiced being colorblind as a little Girl Scout, I took for granted that not every acknowledgement of non-white culture was a celebration, and I definitely still thought the default of every character was a white man until until I was told otherwise, and that's even though I'm not a man. <laughs> so socialization is a trip, and a complicated one at that. As I've said many times, the Twilight Saga socialized me to believe in a love where the most important thing I could give away was my life, to be the perfect Bella Swan with the perfect balance of innocence and independence required to seduce Edward. Even with what might be considerable exposure to indigenous and Latina communities compared to other white Americans, I'd be lying if I didn't say that Twilight's treatment of the Quileute tribe didn't bury its head in me like a tick to twist out later. When I saw Jacob Black in Twilight, I thought then, and still sort of think now, that it was neat to see a Native American character in a movie. I handed over all benefit of the doubt to Stephanie Meyer at the time of the books, as we know, <laughs> and even though I didn't understand the Quileute tribe in the faraway land of the Pacific Northwest, I trusted that Stephanie Meyer was using decent research and acting respectfully when she wrote about the tribe and developed the character of Jacob Black. But, like everything else in this saga, there's the digestible, surface-level story, page-turner, and then there's the deeper dive that can kind of make you sick. On the surface, the fictionalized version of the Quileute tribe is a group of people who stick to their beliefs and traditions, and they're flexible to their friends. They don't let the pesky colons onto their beach until there's a life-or-death urgency that forces their hands. Underneath that, there's the bias of Stephanie Meyer, who twists the stories about the Quileute until they look like the controlling bad guys that need to be quelled by the one member of the tribe who wants to get in tight with the white man, and that'd be Jacob Black. There are a handful of things that Stephanie Meyer got right, perhaps making the pretend portions even more insidious. First of all, Forks is a real place in Washington, and the Quileute tribe are the rightful stewards of that land. Like all other places of industry in the United States, much of the Pacific Northwest that previously relied on logging has been impacted by environmentalist policies that take away a lot of opportunity for money-making without replacing those opportunities. Having a bit of tourism income from Twilight fans is probably not the worst thing to ever happen to a small town, though we all know that tourism is a fragile, imperfect economy for many reasons, including the possibility of an event like a global pandemic. The visitor book at Forks Visitor Center went from 74 signatures in 2005 to over 20,000 annually by the time the series was finished. 
Nevertheless, Twilight could have been set entirely in Seattle, Ontario, or Portland with pretty much the same plot, or Stephanie could have invented a town for the setting. Instead, she chose a place whose modern history is inseparable from its tribal history, and that's something that's rare to find in a country that has whitewashed the pages of almost every history book. According to Stephanie Meyer, she chose the town of Forks for its name. She saw this as the story of Bella's big fork in the road, and when she heard of the town, she knew it was where she wanted to set her story. In fact, the original title of the book was Forks, and then eventually a publisher or somebody was like, yo, that's not a very romantic title, maybe try Twilight. Stephanie Meyer also said when she wrote the story and included some of the Quileute lore that she didn't intend for anyone else to read it. She also says she considered giving the tribe a fictional name once she realized the book would be published. The fact of the matter is that Stephanie Meyer's intentions and her execution have always been divorced, as we know from her experience and execution of feminism and trying to put feminism into her stories. She didn't change the name, and she didn't honor the real tribe. She also knew her books were doing well when Eclipse was published, with tales of a tribe that she was distorting more and more with every sentence. Forks was previously known as the unincorporated town of Quileute, and it wasn't incorporated until 1945. It's a part of the Quileute Valley School District. It's located on the Quileute River system. It would have been bonkers for Stephanie Meyer to choose the real place of Forks, Washington, without including the tribe. A cursory glance at the Quileute Wikipedia page reveals what I already knew. Stephanie Meyer didn't dig very deep when she was researching the Quileute. According to Pacific Northwest Coastal Mythology, the Quileute believe they were created from wolves and perform wolf dances, among other ceremonies. The modern-day Quileute Reservation was established in 1889, and it's 14 miles west of Forks. Boom. In those few sentences, that is all of the information that Stephanie Meyer used and felt that she needed to build a family, a tribe, and a plot using this limited section of lore. This is no surprise, considering that she also used the tiniest little fragment of vampire lore to work off of, but the difference is that vampires are not a real group of people, and profiting off of them is ethically sound. In an interview with Abigail Campos, a Quileute tribe member named Anne Penn Charles talked about the obligation thrust on the tribe to educate Twilight fans about the difference between the fictionalized wolf characters and the real people of the Quileute tribe. When the heaps of tourists showed up after the success, many of the kids who adored Jacob Black were disappointed to find nothing but a reservation and a cultural history different from the one told in Eclipse. At this point, I'd like to point out an old, complicated saying that I end up hearing a lot in my conversations, mostly with queer people, about representation. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Of course, if you've been paying attention to Britney Spears in the past 20 years, you know that publicity certainly has a hand in painting something in a positive or negative light. So, you know, that's step one in that this might not be a perfect phrase. I'm bringing this up now because once the Quileute got attention from Twilight, they were able to negotiate a bit with Congress and the House to get their land moved inland to avoid the rising sea levels. Honestly, that's a humane request that I don't think the U.S. government should even have the power to decline to begin with, but Twilight publicity helped give the government a reason to want to protect the group more than they might have in the past. On the much bigger flip side, the fictionalized version of the Quileute tribe is property of Summit Entertainment, and not a dollar of it goes to the actual tribe. Unlike a movie like Smoke Signals that was written and directed by natives, the people profiting off of Twilight's tribe are Hollywood execs and our girl Stephanie. Perhaps the story could have been harmless if Stephanie Meyer really was the only one reading her story, but instead she wrote the cultural background of a group for them, created images of wolves to sell as temporary tattoos at Hot Topic, and then presented it to millions of people to take at face value. 
In the pros and cons tally of Quileute publicity, we have one check in the pro box, which is some deserved credibility in Washington, and at least a dozen checks in the con box, including the alienation of a group who already survived the genocide of American colonialism. Now, what exactly did Stephanie Meyer do to the Quileute? So far, all I've mentioned is the abstract idea of representation, and we all know that Jacob Black is one of the beloved characters of the series. So what's, what's the problem? Here's the most basic rundown of the situation, with help from an essay called Biting Bella by Judith Legat and Kristen Burnett. All references to the Quileute from here on out will refer to the fictional tribe of Team Jacob rather than the legitimate tribe of the same name. In the beginning of the Twilight Saga, Jacob relays some of the Quileute history to Bella. He doesn't believe the stories, but, you know, we're aware of this treaty involving the tribe and the Cullens. Basically, if no vampire bites a human, they can remain on the land, but if they do, the treaty is void. Another way to break the treaty is if the Quileutes reveal the presence of the vampires to a human. As you know, both of these elements of the treaty are broken by the end of the saga, but the treaty remains in place because of concessions made by the tribe. In order to really understand the problematic nature of Stephanie Meyer's story, you have to consider the tribal member Samuel the Alpha of the Wolf Pack. He has access to the minds of the other werewolves and uses his power to force them into submission, basically slavery, to uphold the Quileute values and treaty to a T. If the treaty was upheld literally, the transformation of Bella would have meant the end of the treaty and a good reason to rip Edward Cullen's face off, an alternate ending that I completely approve of. Instead, Jacob breaks off to become a new leader of a new pack where no one would ever be enslaved, and Jacob becomes a leader with a more Western, democratic, quote-unquote, respectable approach. He then, of course, allies himself with the Cullens and gains power as a mediator because of his allyship, and it turns out the only way to be a good and proper Indian in this story is to assimilate with the white vampire culture. The whole thing is facilitated by Jacob's invested interest in Bella, and he is a-okay with being flexible on a treaty that predates him immensely if it means he has a better shot at getting the girl, or, you know, imprinting on her infant daughter. Let's just get it out of the way because this is the first time it's brought up as any clips. Imprinting does not exist in the real world the way it does in the Twilight Saga. I tried to research what imprinting really is, but I am no Charles Darwin and my audience is not a biology classroom, so here's what I managed to gather through like squinting my eyes and skimming a university research paper. Imprinting is part of the evolutionary process practiced in many species involving learned mate preferences to help keep a species alive. For example, someone like Bella with a cop for a dad might be drawn to someone with unwarranted power over her, like Edward Cullen. That's just how I understand it. I wasn't invited to whatever conference Darwin, Freud, and Stephanie Meyer got together at and decided imprint could be in this fantasy novel. I don't totally understand, but it does have a legitimate meaning outside of whatever this is. Whatever Jacob does, the imprint on baby Renesme is creepy and completely of Stephanie Meyer's making. According to Jacob, imprinting is not like love at first sight, really. It's more like gravity moves suddenly. It's not the earth holding you here anymore. She does. You become whatever she needs you to be, whether that's a protector or a lover or a friend. The other imprinting that happens in the series between Sam and Emily, Jared and Kim, or Paul and Rachel more closely matches with the biological origin of the word imprint, even though it still sort of makes me uncomfortable. All but one of the werewolves in the story are men, and the lone girl wolf, Leah Clearwater, doesn't imprint. The Tumblr Twihards have decided that Leah Clearwater's gay, but there's <laughs> no evidence in the books. 
With Leah out of the way of ruining my possible examination here, we have a structure where wolf men decide to imprint on women, teens, or very young girls to act as protector and intimate friend until the girl is old enough to reciprocate romantic feelings. Hopefully I don't have to explain why this is unsettling or why it's pretty weird to normalize grooming among only the native tribe. How come creepy behavior is tied to culture and tradition when it comes to the wolf pack, but goes completely unscrutinized when Edward decides to stalk Bella, a girl 86 years his junior? It's almost as though Stephanie Meyer wants to grant Edward free will to do whatever he wants, but gives the indigenous characters unbreakable rules to imply a monolith of sensibility and an old-timey mythology at the same time. It's almost like that. Bella describes Kim, Jared's imprinty in Eclipse. My first impression of Kim was that she was a nice girl, a little shy and a little plain. She had a wide face, mostly cheekbones, with eyes too small to balance them out. Her nose and mouth were both too broad for traditional beauty. Her flat black hair was thin and wispy in the wind that never seemed to let up atop the cliff. But after a few hours of watching Jared watch Kim, I could no longer find anything plain about the girl. The way he stared at her. It was like a blind man seeing the sun for the first time like a collector finding an undiscovered da Vinci, like a mother looking into the face of her newborn child. So this is another way that Stephanie Meyer views love. We've seen her constantly describe what love looks like between Edward and Bella. I've already told you why I don't like it, but here we've got a second version of that. We also have a line about traditional beauty referring to white European faces, Apparently, the alternative to the Edward kills Bella kind of love is a love where a man looks at the woman like an object for his collection, or like he birthed her himself. I've said in a previous episode that Edward is Bella's mother, and here we have the same principle applied to a totally different relationship. I'm not saying a mother-child thing never happens in romantic relationships, but I just think Stephanie Meyer had a little too much influence to be lacing that particular relationship model into her story so often. If we take a look-see at the story Billy Black tells around the campfire in Eclipse, we see a bunch of non-fictional tribe names scattered into a story about fictional characters named uh, Taha Aki, mostly, is the main one. There's a bunch of other ones in the book, but the movie has that one. The story speaks about the Quileute using their spirit selves to protect the land, and also explains that the Quileute were the only tribe in the area with mystical abilities. They were violent and fought amongst themselves, as well as the outside world, and as spirit warriors they became drunk with power and started taking additional wives, making human sacrifices, and enslaving one another. After a while, the bodiless spirit warriors decided to take over the body of local wolves, and the werewolves of Lapush were born. As Bella and the werewolf boys of Lapush stare from around the campfire, Billy explains that this isn't the end of the story. The Quileutes start finding human blood in the woods, and members of the tribe started going missing from their homes until one day the predator was caught. A smelly, cold, stony corpse with red eyes and bloody lips. From there, Billy tells a story about the small war between the cold ones and the wolves and explains the fatalities on both sides throughout the years. Eventually, he introduced the yellow-eyed vampire, undeniably Carlisle Cullen, and the treaty made with him to allow the vampires to live in vegetarian peace as long as they stayed off tribal lands. The thing about the old legends told by Billy Black is that none of them are true in actual Quileute history. I know I certainly don't care if a book invents some history to tell a story that's standard novel writing stuff, but there's a problem. One, it isn't Stephanie Meyer's place to invent tribal lore. 
It's a matter of staying in your lane and recognizing power dynamics to stay respectful in your writing, and she didn't do it. The section of the book where Billy tells the story is framed as educational, and it's not. It absolutely crosses the line into exploitation of the tribe, and for what? To give the Quileutes importance in a story where they've been sidelined. That's the other half of the problem. Is Stephanie Meyer frames wolf lore, so the only reason the wolves exist is as a counterpoint to the vampires. Without the vampires, three quarters of the story told by Billy would be cut. In fact, Stephanie didn't find any opening to tell this story until the army of newborns started threatening the treaty, running around as if there were no boundaries. The fact that the Quileute had to step into this vampire battle in order to keep their land is disappointing, because after all, the issue was between the Cullens and the newborns, not the tribe. For the sake of the saga, the authors rewritten Quileute lore so they wouldn't matter at all without their white foils. On top of that, the dangerous task of protecting the land from vampires, the very task that causes Leah Clearwater to shed a tear at the end of Billy's story, is written as like a totally natural biological response. It's unavoidable and even natural for young members of the tribe to risk their health and their lives in response to the vampire colonists. Again, we see the native characters completely stripped of free will while the Cullens could choose any moment to move away. The Cullen family is nomadic every like five or ten years, right? They move. Instead of moving when, you know, the, the little push reservation is located there, they cannot move. They've been given no other land. And the Cullens bring their problems <laughs> right up to the edge of the reservation, make it the, make it the Quileute's problem. It's somewhat ironic that Stephanie Meyer wrote the Quileutes as sitting ducks in the short end of an unbalanced treaty, while relying on historic imbalance of American history to get away with painting the Quileute tribe as mystic savages that also protect white people. Jasper Hale, formerly known as Jasper Whitlock, of the Cullen Coven, his story is also mythologized, but in a much more romantic way. As a young major in the Confederate Army, he saw a few fair ladies in need of assistance while he was riding home on his horse one day. Little did he know, the women were vampires, and the one called Maria bit him and used him to help make an army. The lore continues to explain that while the Confederate Army fought the Union, there was another war happening in Texas between vampire newborns, Confederate vampire newborns, and I guess just like human Texans. Like I said, I don't mind making stuff up to write a novel. I also kind of like the thought of like some sort of cover-up in American history where the reason I don't know about the vampire war in Texas in the Civil War chapter of class is because they like somehow managed to cover it. The difference is that history books already teach about the Civil War, and we even learn about Confederate heroes like Jasper. And the other difference is vampires don't exist. It's okay to insert vampires into history because there's a good reason why they aren't there to begin with. When we're talking about tribal history, the vast majority of the readers have never heard of the Quileute tribe before these books, even though they are a completely real people who have been unfairly treated since the arrival of European settlers. That's the difference. Jasper's Confederate upbringing could have been negated any number of ways, but instead he's seen as a noble veteran in his past life. The same way that Edward is a weird, flu-ridden virgin, the same way that Alice is a kind of crazy, kind of fun sister to have around, Jasper's human life directly informs his behavior in the Twilight universe. He's a well-mannered soldier. An essay by Elizabeth Bayard Hardy helps shed some light on what it's like being the oldest living Confederate veteran. She explains in the essay, 
The use of women as recruitment tools was a shamelessly effective practice, especially early in the war. These tactics clearly played to the use of beauty and sexuality as an advertising tool that's been employed to sell everything from alcohol to automobiles, but it also worked upon something deeper, the Confederate soldiers' innate sentimentality, particularly with regard to the fairer sex. I've already made it clear that I think Eclipse is largely forgettable, but the subtle messaging of giving Jasper a leadership role while making the natives do the Cullen's bidding is important to the messaging of the book. I'll also say that the concept of men going to war to protect the helpless women is a cultural philosophy we still see today. It's fascinating to me that Jasper's own desire to help some feeble women actually turned out to be his downfall. The vampire Maria, one of the only non-white characters in the whole saga, turns him and uses him. It's got girl boss written all over it, but unfortunately she's also clearly a villain in the story. There's another essay about Jasper Hale and the Specter of the American Civil War by Andrea Robertson Creamer that describes a little more nuance in Jasper's role in the saga. She says, Jasper's role in the Twilight Saga mirrors a compelling historical archetype in American culture, the Southern Gentleman Soldier. As Jasper's personal history is slowly revealed over the course of the Twilight series, we are introduced to several historical stereotypes regarding American masculinity and its relationship to violence. We know from Jasper's incident at Bella's birthday party where she got the paper cut and then he, you know, attacked, that Jasper's the most volatile of the Cullens. The rest of them seem to float around with ease of upper-class living while he's always jonesing for a kill or forgetting to blink. His volatility threatens the Cullen Coven constantly, and his magical ability to control emotions of people around him can be used for the kind of manipulation Edward can only dream about. I think a lot of people think it's cool that he can control emotions, but if you think about it too long, it is sort of bad. And they also did a lot of merch that made it seem like he was just an empath, but he puts emotions on you, not the other way around, so I think that's sort of uh, misleading. Yes, he's the ideal Southern gentleman who understands humble labor and financial insecurity, but he's also a violent man who admits he wouldn't have been alive likely without kind-natured Alice at his side. In the essay, Robertson Kramer ties this understanding of Jasper to a larger understanding of American history. For as long as we base our men on the Southern gentleman soldier, we will also have men with insatiable appetites for violence. I'd also like to point out that in other stories, specifically in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I know it's different, but also kind of not. The Vampire Angel is working to undo his past wrongs in his current life and the reason that he even exists the way he does is because he has a soul when it comes to jasper there is no change where he was like given a soul and now wants to undo his past life like the way he behaved at the beginning of his vampire existence where he was like killing newborns and stuff that is something he did with the complete clear-headedness that he would have now like there's the only thing that differs is time but I'm not sure like what made him change and they don't really describe that very well plus considering that he was on the side of the confederate war that was rooted in protecting the right to keep slaves the fact that it doesn't come up that he would like to try to undo that in any way or make things right and that's why he doesn't eat people anymore is just like kind of hard to stomach. It seems like the reason that he is the way he is now is because he can't be with Alice unless he stops eating humans. So his like southern drawl thing that he saunters in with sometimes is not 
attractive to me. It seems like he could have done more to try to right the wrongs that he undoubtedly committed earlier in his life. I think it's close to impossible to tell how much of Stephanie Meyer's messaging is intentional. There are interviews where she says that the characters wrote themselves and she means it. Like when Edward makes a decision, she claims that's Edward's decision, not hers. The natural flow of the story helps keep the reader turning pages and the lack of complexity makes us question our interest when we finish the saga. There's this like post-read clarity that we all get where we're like, how did we just do that? Eclipse provides as much insight as Twilight, Midnight Sun, and Life and Death do into the mind of the author. As of this recording, Meyer says she isn't going to write sequels for Midnight Sun, though I'd very much like to see Edward's treatment of the wolf pack and his look into their shared hive mind. I wonder if he could provide more of Jasper's story beyond what can be mumbled out to Bella on the training field. If nothing else, the story presented in Eclipse helps rule out the notion that Edward is the only white man to be praised in the story and in Stephanie Meyer's mind. White characters, men, are the backbone of the saga, despite the lip service paid to the strength of the Quileute tribe and the purpose served by some of the white women. Next week, we'll be back to talk more about Rosalie's behavior in Breaking Dawn with a look at Pro-Life Vampires, the New York Times best-selling oxymoron of 2008. This podcast was written, recorded, and edited by Susie Shelton. The theme music is by Alexis Lopez. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. I'm putting links in the show notes to learn more about the Quayute tribe from the tribe itself rather than through me or Stephanie Meyer. If you like this show, consider tuning into our sister podcast, Jawbreakers, or following Nurma Nurma on Instagram. You can DM any feedback or questions to that account and I will get back to you. All sources used for this episode are in the description. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number is 800-273-8255. Special thanks to you for listening to this podcast. Extra special thanks to Stephanie Meyer for ruining my life. Thank you.